0: the second letter to the Church of the Thessalonians. May God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Your faith is growing more and more despite your hardships and suffering. God uses this persecution to develop us, but judgment will come for those who abuse you. The end is coming, but it will not come until the Antichrist is first revealed. He will exalt himself over everything and proclaim himself to be God. Many will follow him, but will be lost forever because of it. The day is coming for the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus, and we will come with him from heaven with his powerful angels. Jesus will overthrow the Antichrist with just a word spoken, and he will reign over all creation in triumph. God has chosen you to be saved by the work of his Spirit and by your faith May you continue to be faithful to the Lord and walk in obedience to Him so that the Lord Jesus may be glorified in and through your life. Until that day, we will all be together with our Lord.
1: I love this choir and orchestra, don't you? And, okay, every so often... Every so often we get to have the choir and orchestra in third service, and it it is really tough. All of these individuals have gone through three services, and it is tough on them, but yay. Every so often we get to have that in third service. Every so often also, when you are reading the news, when you are listening to news, you will hear the word Armageddon mentioned. Every so often, and every so often when it is mentioned in the news, it is always about some catastrophic event that has just happened or may happen, and all of the world will be destroyed. It's that sort of thing. You remember a few years ago when um, there was a movie that came out, and the movie was of this giant asteroid that was headed right for the earth, and it was as big as Texas. That's big, right? Right? Living in Texas, that is really, really big, and it's coming for the earth. It's going to destroy everything, and what was the name of the movie? Armageddon, because in popular culture in America, the idea of Armageddon is this terrible thing. Maybe it's a natural force or it's a nuclear something, and all the world will be destroyed, And that's the idea in this culture about the word Armageddon. But the truth is, the word Armageddon actually comes from the Bible. And the Bible never calls Armageddon that way. Never says Armageddon is like that. When the Bible uses the word Armageddon, it is always about the last great war between God and Satan. Between Christ and Antichrist. And it's not a terrible thing because right after it happens, the world does not come to an end. What, right after it happens, Jesus, it ushers in a thousand year reign of Jesus on the earth. So when the Bible talks about the battle of Armageddon, it talks very differently than our popular culture. And you need to know that as we enter now, I want to talk to you about the subject of the battle of Armageddon. We're going through a series in 2 Thessalonians in which the whole book is about this great idea. What will happen as the end comes? What's gonna happen? And he sort of lays it out for us all through this book. And we have worked our way verse by verse all the way to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 5. We've actually gone a little bit past 5 because the next few verses after 5 are about the Antichrist and we brought all that together in those two messages on that topic. But we backtrack to verse 8 now because verse 8 then says... That Christ will come. We looked at the glorious appearing of Christ last week and when he comes there will be this last great battle between God and Satan, the battle of Armageddon and I want to talk to you about that battle. This great battle of Armageddon is actually talked about in many places in scripture. Daniel several times, he doesn't use the word Armageddon but he uses the, he explains what's going to happen several times in the book of Daniel. Isaiah talks about it, Joel talks about it, Zechariah talks about it. In fact, Zechariah in the Old Testament can, can, has three chapters all about the battle of Armageddon. We're going to look at that in just a minute. In the New Testament, there is John in the book of Revelation, and he talks about it in chapter 14, chapter 16, and chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. And now, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8... Paul references that event. And so we're going to pull all this together and we're going to take a look at what does the Bible teach about this great battle. But before we do, I think it would be helpful to us to get a sense of context of where it is that this battle takes place. And so let's do that for just a moment. You remember that I have talked to you about six great events that the Bible says are going to happen in the last days. The first event is that the world will grow worse and worse. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 24. He lays out the idea of the second coming in Matthew 24. And he says that in the last days, it's going to be getting terrible and more horrible as it progresses. Then the second thing the Bible says is that those who are true Christ followers will be raptured away. That word rapture actually means to be snatched. And it describes it in 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 to 18. We'll be raptured away, snatched away. And he says, then we will experience our own judgment as believers that is called the judgment seat of Christ. Now this is my opinion and it's based upon the reference that Paul makes of the marriage supper of the Lamb in the beginning of chapter 19 and this is why I place it there. The third is this. There will be seven years of tribulation. The word tribulation. There will be seven years of tribulation which the, that, the, that the Bible describes as the worst seven years in human history. In which the world will see the emergence of a world leader that the Bible calls the Antichrist. Then at the end of the seven years of tribulation, remember tribulation, seven years of tribulation, Christ will return. It's the glorious appearing of Christ. Now, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you, if you're taking notes, I did this last week as well, but if you're taking notes, this is not going to be on the IMAG screens. It's not in your notes. I'm going to ask you to write something in your notes. Three words. The first word is pre-tribulation, pre-trib. What does pre-trib mean? What is is that idea? That means what pre-tribulation means is that Jesus Christ is going to come for the church, for us, before these seven years begin, but there are some believers who think no he's going to come halfway through it's called mid-tribulation mid-tribulation and there's some who believe no he's going to we're going to go through all seven years and he's going to come at the end of those seven years and the rapture and the second coming of Christ are all the same thing And that's called post-tribulation. Just to help you understand what these three words mean. I am a pre-tribulationist. I don't believe we're going to go through the seven years of tribulation. Then he says this. At the end of the seven years, Christ will return, the glorious appearing of Christ. The battle of Armageddon will happen then. And will result in the immediate defeat of the Antichrist at the battle of Armageddon. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Number five, after this will come a thousand year reign on this earth called the millennial reign of Christ. The word millennial just means thousand. The thousand year reign, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ literally physically on the earth. Now here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Circle the word millennium or millennial. I'm coming back to that in a minute. Then, number six, a new heaven and a new earth will begin. And in between five and six, there will be the great white throne judgment of those who are lost will be judged. Now, go back to that word millennial. I'm going to ask you to write some more words, and it's not going to be on iMag. So you got to write this down, okay? And you really need to do this. The first one is the word premillennial. you got the word millennial right there. Pre. Premillennial. Premillennial. What does that mean? It means that this group of people believe that Jesus is coming back in the second coming and then will literally physically reign on the earth for a thousand years. I am a premillennialist. The second word I want you to write down is postmillennial, And people that are post here's what they believe. That people will become better and better. And the culture will become more and more moral. And we us people will usher in a utopia. We're going to become so good, so fantastic, so wonderful, we will usher in a utopia that will last for a thousand years. And when the utopia, when the thousand years is over, Jesus will come back and congratulate us. Wow, I'm so proud of you. Look how perfect you've become. I don't think so. Now, the, the, here's the deal. That was a really popular idea At the beginning of the 20th century, and it was all because of the theory of evolution. Look, we're just going to keep evolving better and better and better and better and greater and greater. greater. We'll create our own utopia, then Jesus will come back. It took two world wars, and pretty much everybody abandoned post-millennialism and said, we ain't getting better, and it is not going to happen. There's still a few uh, post-millennials around, around, but not many. The third is millennial. And it is a, a, a letter A in front of millennial. And when you put an A in English, you put an A in front of the word, it means none or not or no. And this is a group of people, group of people that say, there's no thousand year reign of Christ on the earth that God never intended for us to think that. Now, John actually literally says there is in chapter 20 of Revelation. And there are all these passages in the Old Testament that talk about it and describe it. But those who take an amillennial view say, look, no, you've got to take all this figuratively. It's not meaning to be literal. John didn't mean it literally. All these references in the Old Testament, it's not, it's not talk, it's not meant to be literal. You're not understanding that God's te- speaking symbolically and figuratively, There is no tribulation, there is no antichrist, there is none of this stuff. In fact, pretty much everything from the 6th chapter of Revelation to the 20th chapter of Revelation, none of that exists. None of that's going to happen. All that is sort of secret code that is happening in the first century. Now, most believe there is no antichrist, but many are millennia believe there is an antichrist and it was in first century it was Nero. Nero of first century was the antichrist and from chapter 6 to chapter 20 John was just writing in code and only the Christians in first century would have known that was Nero and he's sort of writing in code to them but it doesn't apply to us today. Here's what I'm going to say about that. First of all when you've got all of these passages in the Old Testament talking about the first coming of Christ, and every one of those things actually literally happened, 30 pieces of silver and born in Bethlehem and uh, in Galilee and all of these things crucified on a cross, even the things Jesus said on the cross, they were all prophesied and they came literally true literally and in the next breath those very same prophets then said and here's what's going to happen in the second coming and though the first coming they were only talking literally in the second coming it's all symbolism why why would we interpret it's all symbolism we don't really know what it means don't you interpret prophecy by what God has already shown he does in prophecy I think the answer is yes And that's why I take a more literal view. There are times in which it's obvious the Bible's talking figuratively, but it makes it so obvious you can't miss it. Otherwise, I'm going to take exactly what the prophets said, the way they said it, because when they said about the first coming, it came true. When he comes back again, it's going to come true just like it did before. Second of all, Nero as the Antichrist, I'm sorry, he was a bad guy. And you look at his life, but he didn't measure up to the Antichrist. He does not deserve that title. There's a whole lot said about the Antichrist that he doesn't even get close to. And when that argument is brought up, the, oh, it's just symbolic. You, you can't take all this literally. Okay. I'm not an amillennialist. I'm a premillennialist, and here's the idea. Just read the Bible. Just read the Bible. And then, whatever God said, go with it. So with that in mind... Let's take a look at this battle that is actually literally going to happen, the Battle of Armageddon. What I want us to do is we look at what the Bible teaches, bringing all these passages together, I want us to, to get the concept of what it's teaching, that there are three battlefields. Three battlefields, and all of them take place in Israel. North Israel, South Israel, and Jerusalem. So here we go. The first battlefield takes place in in the Valley of Jezreel. I want you to take a look at two pictures of that valley. Here's the first picture. Uh, This picture was actually uh, shot by Dave Grummy, one of our pastors, of this region. This is called the Valley of Jezreel. By the way, this is the most fertile area in the whole world. Per square foot, it produces more than any other place anywhere in the world in the valley of Jezreel. It's just absolutely amazing. The pictures that you're going to see, the two pictures are actually taken from the hill that is called Megiddo. And at that, that, that hill of Megiddo, there was a fortress. In that fortress, uh, right outside the fortress, he takes the picture of this area. And what it describes is this whole region will be filled with armies. And he goes through with several passages in Scripture in the Bible of why the armies are coming. They're coming to destroy the Jews once and for all. There is sort of a pull of armies all over the world, all over the world, to come all the way to China. He even mentions in Revelation China. All these armies coming from China, from everywhere coming to this place. We're going to destroy these Jewish people once and for all. There is this pull to come here. And I want you to imagine all this region, and even beyond it, all across northern Israel being totally immersed with armies. There's a second picture I want you to see. And do you see that hill right over on the right? It's sort of by itself. That is the Mount of Transfiguration. In Jesus, you remember the story of Mount Trent? That's it, right there. And you see a city over there in the left-hand side. That's actually modern-day Nazareth. During Jesus' day, it was just a little village. But when Jesus would look out, he would see this whole valley every single day. Well, the Bible says that they have come to destroy the Jewish people. And suddenly, out of the clouds, comes Jesus. And we come with him. And several places in Revelation and other places say that when they see Jesus coming and all of his armies who are us, when they see Jesus, they will mourn and wail because they know they're doomed. Revelation chapter 19 verse 15 says that from his mouth will come a sword Isaiah chapter 11 verse 4, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. So now listen to the whole verse of 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed, that's the Antichrist, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. All Paul is doing in that verse is quoting Isaiah 11:4. The only weapon Jesus will need at the battle of Armageddon is a word spoken. And when he speaks this word, all of the armies that have come against God, all the armies of the Antichrist will be destroyed. The battle will be over before it begins. The enemy will be pulverized by a puff. I just wanted to be able to make that statement. There will be a war that is won by just a word. I'm so glad I'm on the right side of this, aren't you? Revelation chapter 19 verse 19 says this, then I saw the beast and in the book of Revelation the beast is always the antichrist, then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered to fight against the one sitting on the horse. We saw this one sitting on the horse last Sunday. Just a few verses ahead of this, this is the coming of Jesus. He comes on the back of a white horse, symbolizing a conqueror. Here he comes. Here comes Jesus. They have come to fight, really, not just against the Jews, but against this one riding on the horse, Jesus. And his army, who is us, and the beast, the Antichrist, was captured. And with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast. Miracles that deceived all who accepted the mark of the beast and who worshiped his statue. Now stop for just a second. Look, if he comes during our lifetime and if the, uh, we are a, a true church of Christ is taken out of here and you're left behind somehow, everyone will be required to take some mark. Symbolizing allegiance to this Antichrist. Don't take it. Because the moment you take this mark, you're doomed. There is no chance for you, there will never be another opportunity for you. It'd be better to die and immediately go to heaven than to be doomed and lost forever by taking the mark. Both the beast and the false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse. It's all over the Bible. This is what happens with this mouth, this, with this uh, word from Jesus. And the only thing that will be left there in the valley of Megiddo, the, the valley of Jezreel, is bird food. The Bible says that the, that, that the vultures will come and pick off the food from the bones. We don't keep going there. Revelation chapter 14, verse 20 says that so many will be killed that day that the blood will flow as high as the horses' bridles for 180 miles. Whoa. I'm telling you, there's a ton of people here. That is not quite to Dallas, but it's getting there. Come on, Mark, do you really believe this? Why not? It's what it says. Yes, I believe this. From Megiddo, Jesus with a word spoken wipes out all of this northern flank, all of this northern armies. And then he goes to the second battlefield. The second battlefield is the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The Valley of Jehoshaphat. Joel chapter 3, look at what he says. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring again from captivity Judah and Jerusalem, he is bringing the Jews back to Israel. In those days at that time, I will also gather all the nations and I'll bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and I will judge them there for my people and for my heritage Israel whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Stop for a moment. He is not talking about coming back from Babylonian captivity in Old Testament because that was only in one country. He is saying the Jews get scattered all over the world and that happened... That happened beginning in 70 A.D. And the Jews did not come back until 1948 and are still flocking, still flocking to Israel. He is bringing the Jews to Israel. And he says, I will now judge the nations for what they did to the Jews. Verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision... For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. I underline the day of the Lord. I'm coming back to it in a moment. Verse 15, the sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer will shine. Do you realize that that verse 15 is the verse Jesus quoted in Matthew chapter 24 verse 29 when he laid out what's going to happen at the end. He quotes this verse from Joel. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invader. Three things that I want you to notice that are very important in the passage that it tells us when this happens. First of all, he says this happens in the day of the Lord. And that is an Old Testament phrase that just simply means at the end. Second of all, Jesus quotes that verse, 15, when he lays out the second coming. It's obvious that Jesus knew this passage is talking about the second coming of Christ. Third of all, never again when this happens, never again will foreigners invade Israel. That has not happened yet. They're still trying to invade, but it will happen as a result of the the battle of Armageddon. It is obvious when this passage in Joel 3 happens. So here's the question. If it's supposed to happen in the valley of Jehoshaphat, where is the valley of Jehoshaphat? Where is it? Well, if you talk to anybody that is from Israel today, it lives in Israel, if you go over to Israel to go tour and you ask anybody, where is the Valley of Jehoshaphat? They will always say, oh, it's right here. It's, it's in right outside of the city walls of Jerusalem, the Valley of Jehoshaphat. But what will not click for them is that was not called the Valley of Jehoshaphat until about 300 A.D. 1,700 years ago, they started calling this the Valley of Jehoshaphat, but they didn't call it the Valley of Jehoshaphat before. Joel chapter 3 was written about six, seven hundred years before Jesus. When Joel mentions the Valley of Jehoshaphat, he would have not been talking about this valley just outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. That would have not been the place. So, where was the place? The valley of Jehoshaphat is about this. You remember in Second Chronicles chapter 20 that all of a sudden Jehoshaphat is the king of Israel at the moment. And all of a sudden there are three armies coming from the southeast conspiring to destroy Jerusalem. Well, he's got all his watch out out there, lookouts, and they come and say, you cannot believe this giant army is out there of these three nations, and they're coming against us, and they're going to destroy us. And Jehoshaphat pulls all the people together. He weeps before God. He calls a fast, and they pray, oh, God, please deliver us. We have no chance. And God speaks a word to one of the prophets who says to King Jehoshaphat, don't worry, I am going to deliver you. In fact... You won't even have to fight. You won't even have to raise a weapon. In fact, here's what I want you to do. Go get all the choir and put them in front. Go out there to where all that army is, put the choir in front. I think the choir ought to be in front, don't you think? There's a choir out there in front. So what happens is they start singing. They start praising God. And as soon as the praise begins, what happens is God so confuses and frustrates these three armies, maybe they've got an internal strife we don't know about already, and they begin to fight each other, and they kill each other off, and Israel doesn't even have to raise a hand. Where did this happen? It is. Where it happened is the valley of Jehoshaphat. This is the key moment, and the best I know, I could be wrong, I don't think I am, but I could be wrong. The best I know is this. This is the valley of Jehoshaphat, I believe. You'll notice a body of water. That is the Dead Sea over on the left. And then this valley around the Dead Sea. And it doesn't stop here. It keeps on going all the way across the southern part of Israel. The first battlefield is across the northern part. The second battlefield is across the southern part. It's a pincer move. For those of you who are strategists, war strategists, it's a pincer move. They're going to come both sides. You guys are not getting away. We're going to destroy all of you. But Jesus suddenly appears, and with one word, boom, they're all gone. They're all gone with one word. Third battlefield is Jerusalem itself. Some of the army, or armies are down here, some up there, but some now are going for the throat. And they have already reached the walls of Jerusalem. The last battlefield is Jerusalem itself. Now, I want to introduce to you a passage of Scripture that is so amazing. I really wish a whole bunch of you would go spend a bunch of time in chapters, Zechariah chapter 12 to chapter 14. Chapter 12 to chapter 14 is all about this battle of Armageddon. And the description is absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. I can't do it justice today. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 12 is describing how what he says a word and they all are dying. He now describes it. Zechariah 14 12, this is the plague for which the Lord will strike all these nations that fought against Jerusalem, the north, the south, and even in Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. What? Their eyes will rot in their own sockets. Their tongues will rot in their mouths. What? When we think of rotting, we think of a slow thing. This is like, a second. Look, there there was no technology during that day of anybody being able to destroy like that. But today, there is technology. It's called a nuclear blast. And exactly that, this description is exactly what happens in a nuclear blast. It just dissolves the flesh while they're standing, all, all the other gory details. I'm not saying Jesus is throwing nuclear bombs at everybody. I'm not saying that. Please don't walk out of here. Oh, he can you not believe our preacher? Jesus throwing nuclear bombs everywhere. No, that is not what I'm saying. I'm saying that by a word spoken, it has that power, that force without the radiation. It has that force and phew, they're gone. I just, I, it's. It is pretty cool, but it's terrible, but um, it's pretty cool. Now look, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. Get ready for this. Get ready. On that day, his, meaning the Messiah, his feet. Remember, he has been to the northern battlefield, the southern battlefield. He's now come to Jerusalem. And when he arrives, poof, everybody's pulverized and gone. On that day, Jesus' feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half of the mountain moving south. Now, I gotta have you stay with me here, okay? I'm gonna show you three pictures and let me give you the explanation. Here's the first of those pictures this is a photoshopped Picture. I am giving. I'm I'm full disclosure at the beginning. This what you see. The city on the left hand side. That's real, and that is the model city of Jerusalem in first century. You go to Israel. You go to Jerusalem. You will see this model city. I've seen it five times, and I will tell you. Every time I go, I want to say to everybody else, y'all go. Please go see other stuff. I want to stay here. I to. Because it is so massive, it is so incredible. Give me two days to just look at this city. It is that spectacular. So what Dave Grumme, uh one of our pastors, did, he's, he can, Dave can do anything. He takes a picture of the model city from the south side of it and he creates a valley. That's the Kidron Valley. He just creates it. That's the way it would have looked in first century. The Kidron Valley, that valley there, right outside of the city walls going to the right. And then he creates the Mount of Olives up that hill, and he creates the hills behind. None of that's actually there. He just made all that up because that is actually the way it would have looked in first century. There it is. That's how it would have looked. There's this. There's the Mount of Olives. Do you see them? Do you see that bridge going across? He even built the bridge going across. That actually did exist in first century and there is the Kidron Valley. And I asked him to do this because I I couldn't find another picture, and I wanted you to get the orientation. In just a second, I'm going to be on the Mount of Olives looking over. So you see what what it is. Now, next picture, we're on the Mount of Olives, and this is my picture. And you see the Dome of the Rock on the left, that little top up there? That's a Muslim dome on the rock. And then, look, this is... The city wall around Jerusalem now. Now, this city wall was built during the the uh, Ottoman period of the Muslims who came in and conquered, I don't know, five, 600 A.D. I don't know when it was. They came and conquered Jerusalem and all that area, and then they built this wall. This is not the wall during the time of Jesus. This is the wall that was built by them, and those are the eastern gates. Here's what they did. They built Their wall on top of the existing wall. It just sits on top of the existing wall. That was there when Jesus was there. They put every single gate around that city in the exact same place it was during first century. The eastern gate. And here's what the Bible teaches. That when Jesus lands on the Mount of Olives, it will split and he will walk through the eastern gate onto the temple grounds. Well, during that period of time, the Ottoman period of time, the the Jews and the Muslims got along. They were friends. They weren't trying to kill each other. And they were friendly with each other, and that many Jews lived in Jerusalem. Well, the Jewish people said to the guy in charge in Jerusalem, you know that we've got a Messiah coming, and when our Messiah comes, he's going to land on the Mount of Olives, and when he lands on the Mount of Olives, it's going to split, and part's going to go that way and part this way, and then he's going to go right through the eastern gates. And this guy started thinking about it, he said, I'm, I can stop that. And that's when he boarded up with all that rock, he boarded up those two entrances to the eastern gate. He is not coming through this gate. And if you'll notice, that is a cemetery at the foot of the eastern gate. Why? He Everybody that started dying then, they had to be buried right there by the eastern gate. He turned it into a cemetery because he said no Jewish Messiah would dare go through a cemetery because he would defile himself. Therefore, by putting a cemetery here and blocking up the eastern gates, I've just killed the, the coming of the Messiah. He can't come now. That's pretty dumb if you think about it. That's pretty dumb, but this is the conclusion he came to. But here's what I want to say to you. Archaeological digs have discovered that just below the, that eastern gate is the real wall and the real eastern gate, just below it. And the real eastern gate is still there. Oh, man, I want you to follow me. Keep with me. Jesus lands, sets foot on the Mount of Olives. And what does the Bible say? The Mount of Olives splits in two with part of it going to the north and part of it going to the south, and that split goes all the way to the wall and goes all the way back. And you know what, when it does that, you know what happens? It moves everything. All of the dead bodies, all of the defiled land gets pushed away. And there is the real eastern gate, and he goes right through that eastern gate. There you go. Can I tell you something? It's a whole lot more fun to just believe the Bible. Understand how it all fits together and say, you're God. You can do anything you want. Yay, here he comes. That is the battle of Armageddon. One more thing, very quickly. The end of the battle of Armageddon will bring a... Oh, Yeah, keep going. The end of the battle of Armageddon will bring a revival for the Jewish people. They will accept Christ as their Messiah, and then the 1,000 years of Christ's reign on the earth will be ushered in. It's actually going to happen. The battle of Armageddon is not just to eliminate the Antichrist and his armies, but it is also to rescue Israel in more ways than one. Just when they think all hope is lost, here comes Jesus. Jesus. Here comes Jesus to rescue them, the Messiah. And in Zechariah chapter 12 to chapter 14, he lays it all out. Go spend some time with that. Listen to this passage in Zechariah 12, verse 10, 10 to 12, and notice what it says I will pour, this is God speaking, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me. This is God speaking. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. This was written 600 years before Jesus. And I'm sure Zacharias, this is being given to him as saying, Wait, what, the one they have pier- How can you pierce God? But he faithfully wrote down what the Spirit of God gave him. And God says, and when this moment comes, I will pour out upon the house of David a spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me, the one they pierced. It's Jesus. You remember that at the resurrection of Jesus, that there they are in the upper room, and Thomas is not there, and then later Jesus appears to them again, and Thomas is there, and Thomas has said, I'm never going to believe in a resurrected Jesus, and there's Jesus, goes right to Thomas. He said, "Thomas, look at my hands. Put your fingers in my scars. And believe. remember that? Here comes Jesus, God in flesh, here comes Jesus, and he lands on the Mount of Olives, and they see him, the one who was pierced. And they looked on me. The one they have pierced. And they mourn for him. He switches it from first person to third. They mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And they grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. The only begotten son of God. On that day the weeping in Jerusalem will be great. Like the weeping of Hadad Ramon on the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn each clan by itself. Why will they mourn? They will mourn because they recognize it was Jesus all along. All these centuries, and we've rejected him as the Messiah, and it was always Jesus. And now I see, now I realize, oh, how could we have done this? And they will mourn. Because the Messiah they've waited for was Jesus all along. And this is what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 11 when he says this. It's a prophecy of Paul in Romans 11. I don't want you to be ignorant of the mystery, brothers, so that you be not conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles have come in. And so all Israel then will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What happens in Zechariah is these people mourn and then turn their heart to this Messiah. And Paul, as he is looking at Zechariah, he says, this is going to happen all of Israel is going to come to know Christ as Savior. Those who are alive in that day. John MacArthur got it right when he said, although many Jews have been saved through the church's witness, the vast majority of converts have been and will continue to be Gentiles, non-Jews, until their number is complete. This phrase, all Israel, in Romans eleven twenty-six, 26, must be taken to mean the entire nation of Israel that survives at the end of the Great Tribulation. All of them will see him, and they'll come to faith in Christ. It's the capstone of the battle of Armageddon. Isn't it amazing? Now listen, there are some in this room. You've never come to know Christ as Savior. You've never given your heart to him. I wish you'd come to give your life to Christ. Right through the center doors and across the sort for you, there's a room called Next Step Center. And when this service is over, in just a few minutes, would you go? Would you go to the Next Step Center and talk to one of our ministers about how you could know Christ? There are many of us who are part of this church. Next Sunday, I am teaching, continuing 2 Thessalonians, but I'm teaching the passage that so clearly shows how does a person get saved. Would you invite someone to come to church next Sunday, someone that you go to school with, someone you work with? Would you invite someone to come to Christ? Now, listen, I know what happens right now. As soon as I pray, people are just going crazy. Got to get out those doors. I got to get to my car. I want to get ahead of the crowd. I know that happens. I wish it wouldn't. And maybe unless you got to go to the bathroom, I wish you'd just stay in this room for a little bit longer. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would move in hearts today of those who need to know Jesus Christ as Savior. God, I pray that you would bring many to yourself that they would give their heart to the Lord. And God, I pray that you'd move in our hearts, those of us who know Christ, that next Sunday we would be inviting people to come next Sunday. That we work with, that we go to school with, that we live by, that our extended family members, that people could be here next Sunday on Mother's Day to hear the simple message, how can you be saved? God, use us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.